it's a pleasure to have you listening to my show today. My sincerest desire is for you to get something from it that will make your life richer, fuller, and safer. My name is Reverend Wynn Henderson. As an ordained Christian minister and a retired medical doctor, I have a dual perspective to bring you content to solve problems in your life. This podcast is the longest-running, single-hosted, spiritually-based radio internet talk show in America. It's been on the air for over 25 years now. I bring you information about the disease of addiction, about your purpose in life, and investigative reporting on truth just below the surface. Uh, Tonight's program, we're going to have Dr. Ralph LaGuardia come back. He's already done four programs, and you can um, search uh, using this search bar with his name and go back and hear all four of them um, in addition to the one tonight. Um, Dr. LaGuardia is a practicing medical doctor and he practices integrative medicine in Connecticut and uh, he has a wide variety of experience uh, that uh, you'll want to try to pick his brain, and the best way to do that is to get a copy of his book, The Bible of Alternative Medicine. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 pages, and it covers about everything that I can think of that you would need to know about taking care of your body and about about medicine. And uh, we've talked uh, out of that book uh, for the last four shows, and we're going to talk tonight. about yet part three, and we're going to review some diagnoses and see what uh, Dr. LaGuardia has to tell you that's important to know. And you can go back to his book and read it and dive deep into it to get all the information. Ralph, it's great to have you back on the show again. Thank you so much, Wayne. It's a pleasure. Well, we're going to talk about fever to start off with tonight because with this uh, tridemic or whatever they're calling it, there's lots of kids out there with fever. And, of course, it's not only kids that have fever but adults. And I know that you have your own way of thinking about the benefit of fever. Tell us about that. Well, you know, fever is very misunderstood and, unfortunately, very uh, inappropriately treated or, or, or encountered with with the patients. Uh, the general public views fever as their enemy, and it must be stopped and it must be cooled off ASAP, which is nothing is further from the truth. Um, the reason is all microorganisms, be it bacteria, fungi, viruses, can only do so because they live at our body temperature, which is, as you know, is 98.6 Fahrenheit. And so that temperature is is what they're comfortable and they could survive in. They can't survive at 95. They can't survive at 101. And that just is incompatible, incompatible with their life and stops them from replicating and actually kills them. And so, the, with, you know, the body is, I've said this before, we, we've talked about it before, the body is so unbelievably perfectly designed. I mean, it's, uh, it can only be the hand of God. It's just, it, it's just a, such a perfect machine. And as one of its greatest defenses 
is fever. As soon as the body detects an overwhelming infection, not the, not the normal bacteria. Every day we encounter a certain amount of bacteria, a certain amount of fungi, a certain amount of viruses, and our immune systems just deal with it. Uh, and so that doesn't result in a systemic or a whole body reaction, um, which like fever. However, if you get a urinary tract infection or any kind of infection, a respiratory infection, um, typically it doesn't happen with skin infections, but it'll happen because there's no doesn't help your body to do that so it doesn't waste it for that but any internal infection your body's response will be once it's once it senses its immune system's losing it immediately goes to the next level and uh, at that level is fever and fever is so amazingly effective that it's usually by itself works well because what it happens is you're actually cooking the microorganisms you're frying them alive. You're cooking them alive. You're making it incompatible for them to replicate, and and consequently, your body, then your immune system, together with the fever, is able to overcome that. But what is what is the first thing everyone does? They take Tylenol, they take aspirin, uh, you know, or they do anything to cool it down. They'll try various uh, different uh, antipyretics, and it's a it's a complete mistake. I always tell my patients, let your fever burn. If you want your flu to last uh, five or six days, uh, then take something for it and lower your fever. If you want it to last three days, let your fever burn. Now, that being said, not if it goes up above 103 or something, but typically in adults that doesn't happen. Because um, at that point, as you know, adults get delirious. In children, it's a different story. Children have a very um, rapid rise in their temps, as you know. They spike temps commonly in the 100, 203 range. And that, that's okay. It's not dangerous for them. Dangerous for them is giving them aspirin because of Ray syndrome. You can't ever give them aspirin. But treating it with Tylenol is a, a mistake because all you're doing is extending your illness or the child's illness by doing that despite your good intentions. And so I always tell people that, that you know, let it burn. You know, you, you're really shooting yourself in the foot by, by treating it that way. Well, you know, on the news and everything, they're talking about that we don't have supplies of the medicines that we need to treat these um, tridemic-type illnesses and everything. But I think what you're saying is you shouldn't be that concerned. Uh, it's good to have some Tylenol around. Uh, if the fever goes up over 103, but if it's down a 101, you can just go with it, right? Right, and that and that's the mistake everyone's making. You know, first of all, we I don't want to sound like an old, you know, fart or something, but we really pamper these kids too much. All right, big deal. They get a fever. They got a little aches and pains. We don't have to treat every symptom. You know, it's it's part of growing up. It's part of life. It's not going to kill them. You know, one of the problems, ironically, with uh, autism and vaccines is, you know, and, and it was it proved to be elusive for quite some time, but the, the general opinion is coming down to what I've said for a long time. It's not the vaccines themselves. It's what happens is, you know, children are vaccinated and well-meaning parents, mothers, uh, for the most part, you know, are, oh, my little little Ralphie's crying, you know. Oh, my God, he, you know, that, that vaccine really hurt him. Let me give him some Tylenol. Or let me give them some Motrin. Let me give them some naproxen, whatever they give you. Typically, it's Tylenol. 
but they'll, they'll try anything to take away any discomfort that a little toddler has. And what that does is that, t- especially Tylenol, Tylenol will occupy their receptors in their liver. And what happens is the vaccine then does not get broken down by the liver and circulates a long time. And I believe that's what's causing the autism. That's why it proved so elusive to finding that fact for the longest time because they would look at the vaccines and not find it because the difference was they finally come down to realize it was, it was well-intentioned parents, you know, coddling their, their little toddlers by trying to take away every ache and pain and inadvertently led to autism. And so right now, I just saw the other day, interesting, on television, they had an advertisement asking about that. Was your, was your child vaccinated and did you give them Tylenol or perhaps over, over-the-counter painkillers? They, they named the other one. And if so, contact this law firm because, they, you know, now the lawyers are circling. They've sent blood in the water. And so they're, they're, all, they're all over this. And uh, but, you know, it, it was it's a horror because we never had autism before or very little of it. You know, we always had it, but it was very little. Well, and, uh, well let me now we have a lot of it. Let me uh, redefine uh, something that you said. You were talking about vaccines, right? Now, yeah. there is a difference between what they are calling vaccines these days, which are not vaccines by the standard that we've always had in the past. These shots that they're trying to give kids down to a few months old and everything, which they don't know whether it's going to kill them or harm them or whatever because they don't have studies, they are not vaccines. They're calling them vaccines because the pharmaceutical companies don't want to be sued. And if they can call them a vaccine and get away with it, then they can take away their legal liability. Exactly. Yeah, I was referring to um, mumps, measles, rubella, tetanus, uh, you know, all the childhood things, which I believe right off the bat, kids are way over-vaccinated just with those. Not Put the COVID vaccine aside. All the other ones aren't great. You don't have to give kids hepatitis, every vaccine you could think of, meningitis, everything. They're loading these kids up with vaccines when we know for sure by study after study is proven the same thing. The same thing holds true for COVID. Herd immunity and natural infection gives you a much better resistance than vaccines ever will without the side effects other than the illness. You know, but uh, when I was five years old, I remember I went to kindergarten, I got mumps, measles, chicken pox, all in the same year because everyone had them. It was the 1950s, and, and, and wisely I, I heard that parents have been doing this for a while now, you know, enlightened parents, are having parties when one kid gets sick, invite them all over, let them get it naturally. And that's much more, much more enduring. For example, with the COVID vaccine, it only gives you, um, and I'll explain why it's not a vaccine in a second, but it only gives you, the COVID jab, a, um, antibodies to the spike protein. Well, as it turns out, that's one of five proteins that COVID-19 makes. And so it's not enduring, and the spike protein mutates on the surface with, with different um, um, subtypes of COVID, and so the variants, and so that's so that makes the vaccines less and less effective. But if you get if you get immune if you get sick with COVID, then you have antibodies to all five proteins on it, so it's much more enduring. 
you know, natural immunity, which they fail to recognize. In addition to which, as you said, so just said a minute ago, this is not a vaccine. Um, you know, Dr. Malone, who created the message RNA vaccine, is totally against giving this to mass amounts of people. He just developed it as an intellectual curiosity to see if that was a way to deliver vaccines. But then what happened was, in the initial studies prior to COVID, whenever they tried to study it in animals, incredibly, all the animals died. And then they just took that, and then as you know, as they jammed this down our throats, and you know, and, and fear mongered everyone, and stampeded the crowd of sheep into taking this for you know for whatever their their ulterior motives are. I can only imagine it. That has it's it's what you can look at it one of two ways. It's not well. First of all, it's not a vaccine because it doesn't satisfy the two criteria of, of a vaccine, which are one prevents infection and two prevents transmission it does neither one so by the very definition of a vaccine you're absolutely correct it's not a vaccine now at this point you have to say to yourself well what is it it's either a genetic modification or genetic engineering which it is because that messenger rna sends goes in sends rna into the, into the nucleus and incorporates itself into the dna and then produce a spike protein and antibodies from there, but that forever alters that DNA. So that, that's genetic changing. That's, no one signed up for that. There was no informed consent about that. There was no studies for long-term ramifications. And as you said, they also gave cover to the pharmaceutical companies by saying it's a vaccine, you can't sue them. So their own studies that showed things were horrific with this vaccine, they just suppressed and they, they got the courts to suppress it for, to, for 55 years. Why would you ever do that if this was so safe? The second way to look at it is a bioweapon, weapon of bioterrorism. I mean, if you're doing this to a population and potentially can cause all kinds of long-term ramifications like we're seeing now, I mean, for the first time ever, 40, 40% uh, the life insurance companies of America came out a month or two ago and said, they have a 40% spike in unexplained deaths in 18 to 59-year-olds, 40%. They said a 10% spike would be what's called a black swan event, which means, you know, swans are usually white every 200 years to get a black swan. You know, that, and so that's what the term they use for that. And so, and but in, even more incredibly, they're scratching their heads and saying, well, we don't know why this is. Well, come on, guys. You know, it doesn't take rocket science. What has changed? That's in, in the two years after the vaccine. You know, and that was 2021. It's even more horrific now. And people, are, you know, and these guys know they're losing, they're losing billions of dollars because their actuarials, as you know, figure out your life expectancy. They're pretty accurate with it. They can tell you know, by your ethnicity, your sex, your male or female, your body habitus, and your comorbidities, how long you're going to live pretty damn close to how long you do live. And right now they're hemorrhaging money because of that, because all of a sudden we've got unexplained deaths. It's so bad that Australia and Scandinavia have stopped all vaccinations for people under 59 years old with COVID because of all of the cardiac problems, all the neurological problems, all the fertility problems, women having huge numbers of birth defects, 
deformed children being born, miscarriages, and just infertility. Uh, because as we know, the spike protein that they inject into you was supposed to stay in your shoulder, not go anywhere. That was nonsense. It immediately migrated in the body. Where did it migrate? It migrated to the testes and to the ovaries and into the blood vessels and into the heart, across the blood-brain barrier, into the brain. And so we have no clue what the long-term consequences are. But if you, but we have a hint because the VAERS data, VAERS is V-A-E-R-S, it stands for Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. It's the U.S. government's way of, of, of tabulating um, adverse events from any vaccine. It's been there for decades. Now, typically, that, and, and even with this, it's widely underreported. I've had lots of patients, uh, eight alone men in my practice, die from complications within three months of getting a COVID booster or the initial vaccine. And I didn't report any of them. And it just takes about an hour of paperwork to get the thing in. And so I just haven't gotten around to ever doing it. And so we know that this is just the tip of the iceberg. But I believe there are up to 80,000 deaths already from the vaccine and well over a million vaccine injuries. So what are we seeing? We're seeing strokes, heart attacks, Bell's palsy, tinnitus, severe fatigue, debilitating fatigue where they can't get out of bed, all kinds of vascular problems, DVTs, pulmonary embolisms, heart attacks, um, myocarditis, um, you know, and all inflammation of the blood vessels from this spike protein, which goes in and circulates through the body and initiates autoimmune reactions against it everywhere. Also, there's a huge spike in autoimmune diseases, Hashimoto's, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis. If you have an underlying condition and you got vaccinated, it is brutal. It flares up immediately. Uh, I've, I've seen tons of that. And the craziest thing, we're seeing an unbelievable spike in, in cancers, not just the typical breast, colon, uh, uh, you know, lung, the ones we most commonly see. We're seeing all these exotic cancers that oncologists said they see once in their practice are seeing three or four in a year all of a sudden. Like even when my, my wife went for a mammogram the other day, she's not vaccinated, and the, the tech asked her, are you vaccinated? And she said, no. And the woman said, oh, you're lucky. She said, we're seeing tons of vaccinated women coming in and finding breast cancer on them or tumors of all types. Um, it's interesting. There's even women now who are advertising for sperm from unvaccinated men because they don't want a vaccinated male sperm to combine with theirs and, and forever be in their genetics. So this is really evolving into an unbelievable chain of events where, you know, where it's going doesn't look very pretty. Um, well, you, one know, thing about it, you know, uh, if, if you listen to the television, practically anything that has to do with medicine, they're putting in, you better go get a vaccine. You better go get a, a booster. It's your responsibility. Right. And, you know, that flies in the face scientifically of what is actually happening. They shouldn't right. be saying you don't need to be taking any of this stuff. It's going to kill you or injure you. And, you know, that is not getting out. The opposite right. is. Right. Just the fact that they're pushing it on children, I, I, I believe it's down to six months or a year, whatever they want to do, is unbelievable. Where are the pediatricians? These kids are at no risk. The only children who die from COVID have 
severe end-stage cystic fibrosis or severe asthma. I'm not talking about a kid who takes a, a hit on his albuterol before a soccer game. I'm talking about kids who are hospitalized every month, and they, they unfortunately die anyway. And so uh, they're so immune-compromised, those children, and you know, and I, my heart goes out to them. But it, the other children are not at risk, risk for this at all. But we're willing to vaccinate them when there's no long-term studies and there's plenty of evidence surfacing that this is a bioweapon bio and it's terrible and it's horrific and the side effects are unbelievable. Why would we expose our children to that, our most vulnerable? And still colleges are demanding students to be vaccinated. Why would you do that? They're at no risk. They get COVID, they don't even know they have it. You know, they get a mild cold. This is not, this is not a life-threatening illness for anyone. It's got the same death rate as the seasonal flu. It always did. But what they did was they counted, and the hospitals made a lot of money on it. They got paid extra for COVID cases. And so if you're COVID positive and you get hit by a truck, you're a COVID death. And that's what skewed the numbers so amazingly. You know, people who, are, yes, were infected but not dying from it. The number that died from it was very, always very small. Yeah. And, you know, and that, but that skewed the numbers. That's that often quoted, a million Americans died. Well, they die with the diagnosis. They didn't die from it. There's a world of difference there. Okay, let's uh, move on to some more common conditions that affect the body. Tell tell our audience what you tell your patients about constipation. Well, constipation, I find in my practice that, and I'm sure you probably saw the same thing when you were in practice, the vast majority of people are not well hydrated. The vast majority of people are constipated, and the in addition to which, di- diet plays a huge role. the The GI tract is another beautifully designed designed instrument, but what it has is it has the the mucosa, the lining of the GI tract is interesting. It unlike every cell in the body, it it doesn't live you know, it doesn't live on glucose. The lining, the the uh, lining of the small intestine, the cells require L-glutamine, an amino acid, for for fuel, and the cells of the large intestine require median chain triglycerides. Um, I use uh, coconut oil to, as the one if I'm treating it um, for their fuel, and so it's a and it also has uh, it's only one cell thick, and it has a layer of biofilm over it, um, oh, they have a thing called the brush border. It looks like a shag rug. And that just increases the surface area for the small intestine um, incredibly. And so it's able to absorb all along the hairs of, those, of that shag. It's only one cell thick, but they have things called tight junctions where it's held close together. And it's only, it only absorbs what it needs for that after it's pre-digested by a layer of bacteria above it. That's good bacteria, not pathogenic. It's what we need to live. And that bacteria pre-digests it and sends in, breaks up proteins, uh, which are already partially digested by the churning in the stomach and the acid pit of the stomach. By the time it reaches that chyme, C-H-Y-M-E, that mix of food and intestinal uh, enzymes, uh, by the time it reaches the small intestine, it's further broken down by good bacteria in there, probiotic bacteria, that breaks that down. So it breaks fats into fatty acids, and it breaks down the proteins into amino acids, and it, bra- and it breaks down carbohydrates also. Uh, so partially digests them and uses it for fuel. The, back, the 
bacteria itself. <clears throat> and then it presents at that brush border and it gets um, absorbed into the intestinal tract from there. I always like to t- teach patients in my books the normal, the normal physiology, how things normally work. And then we can go from there to why you have problems with it. And I do that with every chapter in there. So, and I have drawings of it. And I do it in a way that they can understand it in layman's terms. <clears throat> and so anyway, so that's the normal colon, how it works, um, but, uh, intestine. When you get to the colon, that absorbs excess water and minerals. And then the rest goes out as feces, which is mostly dead bacteria. <clears throat> anyway, and, so that's what, you have, that's what you have ideally. Now you have the American diet. The American diet is heavily devoid of fiber, which the bacteria also need to survive, and it also keeps these the, and the stool wet because fiber is not digested, and so fiber draws in water and that keeps the stool wet and that allows it <clears throat> to move along normally. Now, when it's dry and there's not enough fiber in there, that slows down the motility, the actual propulsion of the stool through the intestine. That is one of the reasons you get constipation right off the bat. You get it from a low-fiber diet, uh, you know, heavily in processed foods, meat and potatoes and things like that, and you also get it from dehydration. So the, so those are, one of the, those are the two most common causes right off the bat. And so if you start with that, you have to start, I start teach my patients, the first thing you've got to do is hydrate yourself. You need that for all your body functions. It's, it's essential for everything. And you can tell when you're well hydrated. I try to make it simple for them. Look at your tongue. If your tongue is dry, like a cat's tongue, there's a sign that you're not hydrated. You can also pinch your skin if it stays up. It's called tinting. If it stays up in a little tent, uh, then that's a bad sign. You're dehydrated. That's hardly You hardly ever see that unless you're really dehydrated. But I, So I teach them about hydration. I also teach them that you have to increase the fruit and vegetables in your diet. Or if you're not willing to do that, then you have to take some type of supplement, um, stool softener, or something that will provide more more of that to you to help to keep your stool soft. Because that's why you're passing this hard, dry stool. stool. It's very painful to pass. <clears throat> and so that's what I do right off the bat. Some of them, it's medication-induced. That's not usually the case. But that's what you could do, and you can help with most types of uh, constipation. Then, you know, if they're, if they're really still having problems, they had natural things like prune juice, which is great for you. It's full of vitamin A also. <clears throat> and that's that's great to help uh, with constipation and things like that. Okay. Um, let's go on to the next topic. Everybody from time to time has a headache. What do you have to say about headaches? You know, head, headaches are interesting. I, you know, I, I see in my practice and I'm sure you did in, in, in when you were practicing, an unbelievable number of headaches. Now, typically, patients call bad headaches migraines. That's usually not the case. Um, it's just a layman's term for it. They think a severe headache is always a migraine. Um, and, you know, and usually migraines, you can tell because they have photophobia with it. It's one of the hallmarks, light bothers, which means light bothers you. Photo means light. Phobia is fear. Fear of light. So you want to you want to get away from bright lights when you have a, a migraine. Usually a migraine is half of your head. Also, it's called a hemi migraine. It's either one side or the other. Typically, it's not both. Um, and that's accompanied by frequently it starts with an, an aura 
you, so your people will see like sparking lights a little bit or smell something, and it's usually a prodromal or a symptom before the actual migraine as a heralding warning that it's coming. Um, and so that's one type of migraine. That's one type of headache, migraines. A very common type of headache are tension headaches. And tension headaches, you tell, are different from migraines because there's no photophobia, <clears throat> and so light doesn't bother you. And typically it starts with neck pain. On the back of the neck, it hurts, or at the base of their skull, and it, God, my, head, my neck is killing me. And then it proceeds in a band-like fastening around their, uh, it feels like a, a hat that's too tight on their head. They feel it's like tightness that's uniform and goes all the way around with a pounding headache. That's a tension headache, and that's treated differently as well. But there's another type of headache that is, oddly enough, is never listed in uh, manuals. It's a sinus headache. Um, and just textbooks just don't even address that issue. That by far is the most common one I see. And by a sinus headache, I mean it usually involves your frontal forehead, your frontal sinuses, and um, it's made worse when people get congested and get colds and stuff. And it's made worse by allergies sometimes. Um, it's made worse by barometric pressure changes. And um, patients, I tell them, when you bend over, is your headache worse? They go, oh, my God, I bend over, my head's killing me. It's usually on both sides. And you get some relief by, by unblocking your nose, first of all. So you have them blow their nose and use uh, temporarily, you can't use it for more than a week, something like Afrin, which will strengthen nasal patches, passages quick. And then I have them Valsalva, you know, pinch the, the, their nose closed and blow out and now gently pop their ears and your station tubes as well and help that. And I treat that very successfully with a combination of an antihistamine. Now you can use, if you want to sleep, you can use something like Benadryl, which is sedating. <clears throat> or if you're during the day, if you're working and stuff or you have to be uh, awake, and then you can use a non-sedating antihistamine, Claritin, Allegra, um, Clarinex, things like that. And um, Zyrtec, um, Zyrtec sometimes is a little sedating, you can give it at bedtime. Uh, but anyway, all of those, you, you give them, but you have to give a painkiller with it. So I usually give that with Motrin, Aleve, Tylenol, any of those. Um, that works really well. Another trick that really works for a really bad headache or any, any real bad pain anywhere is the combination of Tylenol with a non-steroidal. So you take Tylenol and then you take either Motrin, Aleve, Naproxen, Ibuprofen, you take them together, and that's as strong as a narcotic in studies. The dentists do this a lot. It's a, it's a common practice of the dentists these days. And, re, and you know, I was wondering why that is, and the reason is, I believe, is that the Tylenol occupies the liver receptors, just like I was talking about earlier with the uh, vaccines and autism. And it goes preferentially to the liver. The other ones go to the kidney. And it's broken down in the liver, and and um, it, it 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 the other ones then circulate, and it, and it kills pain really well. It works great. So I usually take them, take an antihistamine, do that, and I also advise them for both tension headaches and sinus headaches, and sometimes it helps with migraines as well. Ice packs. You want to shrink migraines. Typically, the, the feeling is it's dilation of a blood vessel in your head stretching the nerves around it. So in order to constrict that blood vessel, you could put ice packs on your head and then the back of your neck where the vertebral arteries go up into your brain um, and cool that. 
and that will lower the temperature in your brain and constrict those blood vessels a little bit, and it helps the headaches a lot. Um, I get migraines, unfortunately, so and, and tension headaches. So I use the, the, that, the ice packs, and it works great. I lay down, take something, lay down, put an ice pack over my eyes and the back of my neck, and lay down for a half hour in the dark, and I'm fine. Uh, and that works very well for most people. But it's an amazingly unrecognized um, problem is sinus headaches, and, and it's typically treated just halfway by patients. They either use the antihistamine or they use the analgesic, but they don't use both. Okay. Um, let's talk about concussions. Uh, you know, there's so many sports going on where you could hit your head, define what a concussion is, and then tell us about what should we do about one if we have one. Okay. Well, concussions are usually a... Uh, the consequence of uh, either a, a really rapid deceleration uh, injury, like in a car accident where you're going really fast and slow down rapidly, too rapidly, and you hit your head on something, or any kind of trauma where your head's banged from one side. The brain, <clears throat> the, our brains and our spinal cord are are surrounded uh, by um, meninges, a double, uh, triple layer of um, like a membrane around the brain. Inside of that is cerebral spinal fluid that bathes the whole thing. And that bathes, our brains are really almost floating in this fluid. And what and that cushions the brain as well. But what happens when you have a concussion, the brain slammed to one side. Uh, and that, that slamming of the brain from one side causes a, a temporary traumatic brain injury. And... Um, fortunately, you know, depending on severity of it or the repetition of it, like football players or boxers will frequently wind up after years of having real, real chronic traumatic brain injury from recurrent injuries like that. So that causes a little brain swelling, and it causes inflammation, and it causes a headache. And you wind up typically, depending how severe it is, um, if, you know, if it's a closed trauma, you know, not a skull fracture or anything like that, if it's just a most of them are closed trauma. Um, you know, someone hits you or you get hit injured in sports or in a motor vehicle accident or a work-related accident or, you know, you can train a branch hits you. You know, all types of odd things that could strike your head. Those um, typically wind up um, causing an acute injury with a headache, and, and you wind up with a thing called post-concussive syndrome. And what that means is, and I see that a lot in my office. I've had this with two people today with me, ironically. Um, you wind up. Uh, and one of those was my wife, who was so earlier because she was thrown from her horse yesterday and slammed into a wall and into a ring when she was riding. Um, it was a weird freak accident. And she's an excellent rider, and it's only happened to her a few times in her life, but it slammed her in. And she And she hit her head, and she got rib injuries as well. And uh, just today, she's foggy-headed all day. She's not thinking clearly. Uh, she's not vomiting. If you vomit and stuff, that's a really bad sign because sometimes the layer, those meninges, the blood vessels between them break, and you wind up having a, it's called the dura mater in there. You wind up having a subdural bleed, some a blood vessel bleeding into that, those between those layers, and that puts pressure on your brain and shifts it to one side and gives you nausea and vomiting and then visual problems and eventually will kill you if it keeps growing in size. So a vomiting after a head injury is always a very serious sign that has to be investigated. But short of that, 
And like I said, if there's no open skull fracture, most of those wind concussions wind up, you know, there's a spectrum of severity with them, but they wind up almost all with post-concussive syndrome. And that lasts, you know, patients always say to me, Doc, how long is this going to last? And I always I don't know. Um, I usually give them um, steroids uh, to help the inflammation in the brain and just have them rest. And there's not much else you can do. Any brain injury or any injury, any, or any injury at all with the brain, you want to you want to do several things to support brain health. The brain is mostly uh, fatty acids and proteins in there, and it's a beautiful machine. But it needs certain things to maintain its health. It needs magnesium. It needs B vitamins, various B vitamins, and it needs fish oil or omega-3 fatty acids. It could be from fish. It could be from flaxseed, from uh, anything. Um, it needs those three things are major for brain health. And so, and developmentally, it needs iodine, but not one when it's injured so much. And so, with any patients who have any kind of neurological problems, uh, but especially after a concussion, I'll besides like giving them steroids. I'll give them B-complex. And if you get over-the-counter B-complex, means all the B vitamins together. And um, it tip, that's better than taking just B12 or isolated ones. It helps to have the balance of all of them. It gives you energy. It supports your nervous system big time. And it helps healing of nerves, uh, especially the brain or peripheral nerves. And so I give them that and um, have them take fish oil four grams a day, have them take magnesium, and um, be complex. All those things work great for brain health. I also, if it's a long-term injury to peripheral nerves or the central nervous system either, I'll give them alpha lipoic acid, which is also called lipoic acid. But that's an amazing nutrient because in our earlier shows, we spoke about fat-soluble and water-soluble vitamins. The vitamins come in two types. Either they dissolve in fat where they're fat-soluble or they dissolve in water where they're water-soluble. Uh, that being said, there is actually a third category called, uh, which is both fat and water soluble. And there's only one substance I've ever heard of that's that, and that's alpha lipoic acid, or sometimes called lipoic acid. And that's great. It, it, it crosses into every cell of the body uses it. It crosses the blood-brain barrier naturally, and which is meant to kept it, keep out harmful uh, nutrient um, chemicals but allow in nutrients and things that nurture the brain. So it's a perfectly designed barrier there to protect the brain on another level from stuff that's already in the blood and won't reach the brain. But it allows this in, and that's a key sign. When you see the body allow something in like that, you know it needs it. It's not doing it by chance, like like fever. It's not happening by chance. Nothing happens by chance. The body is beautifully designed. And so I give them uh, alpha lipoic acid to take as well, 600 milligrams once a day. That works great for peripheral neuropathy. It works good for any brain injury. It also helps fatty liver. It helps it helps all the organs. It has no downside to it, no side effects of it. And so uh, those are the things I try to do because I try to look at things both ways from an integrative perspective, look at it from prevention, and but then if I have to deal with a problem, uh, how would I how would I reconstitute an injured organ? How do you reconstitute a damaged nervous system? You know, we don't we don't do that in medicine. We just treat the problem. We throw. And I've got no problem. I use a lot of gabapentin and a lot of Lyrica or pregabalin. I use a lot of those for neuropathy, and they work well. But they have lots of side effects. And it, but I try to do it in a in a two pronged fashion. I want I treat it a lot of times with conventional stuff, but at the same time, I'll give them my protocol of fish oil. 
B-complex, magnesium, and alpha-lipoic acid to help heal their brain also, not just suppress the symptoms of a damaged organ. And I find that's a really potent model, and it works very well. And many times I can ignore completely using the traditional uh, stuff, the gabapentin stuff, or I can withdraw them later if they're doing well, and they sustain that healing long term. So I really think that it's a potent model, but unfortunately very few of us do that. Well, as you can uh, see by or hear by listening to Dr. LaGuardia, he is a, a human warehouse of good medical advice. And we can't put him on the air 24 hours a day, but his book, uh, The uh, Bible of Alternative Medicine, can do that for you. You get a copy of this book. And it's got everything that he's talked to us about for the four programs that he's been on so far, plus a lot more. And you can study it, and it's written down, and you can take the words and the advice uh, to your your doctors. So I, I totally recommend that you get a copy of the Bible of Alternative Medicine. Uh, Ralph, uh, you had... Uh, two other books, one of which we talked about called Infected, and what was the third book? Uh, the second book was Infected, Secrets from the Medical Underground, and my original book was the Doomsday Book of Medicine. Uh, the Doomsday Book of Medicine is 910 pages. It's amazingly comprehensive, and once again, it's very similar to the Bible of Alternative Medicine. However, it has a slant for preppers people who are prepping long-term, because what I found was the literature out there, I was so disgusted with it. It was such a ripoff. All these, quote, survival medicine books that they put out there, and they were just bogus. They just had, it was like a first aid manual. It had ridiculous advice. You know, you bit by a, a poisonous snake uh, called poison control. Well, this is supposed to be a grid-down situation where you're on your own. You know, that's not giving them much advice. And it had all kinds of just impractical things. Um, I mean, I, I, I think my books are super practical, and I give, like I say, each section, I teach you the anatomy and the physiology, how things are structured and how they work, and then I'll teach you what can go wrong with it. And then at the end, I'll give you 10, sometimes 20 different ways to treat it with non-prescription, over-the-counter um, pharmaceuticals or nutraceuticals or nutrients or even foods. And um, I think that's really empowers patients and it gives them tons of options but it's a practical way and that book has become uh, i'm proud to say the classic for preppers um because it does provide all this stuff but also you know at certain points of the book i'll talk about traumatic um, uh, massive heart attacks massive strokes different things and i really i you know there's nothing you can do for that so i actually have a section called kiss your ass goodbye <laughs> when i said just say don't look at a certain point if if there's a grid-down situation, you have a, your loved one or someone has a massive stroke or a massive heart attack in front of you, there's nothing I could put in this book that's going to help you. You can keep them comfortable, but you have to be realistic about certain things. I would never try to tell people that, yes, you can treat that on your own. You cannot. And so I, I think it's practical in that regard. It gives people realistic goals and realistic ways to treat things. Ralph, uh, what advice do you give on... The people who are listening, uh, 
how to get those books? All, all of my books can be found on, on Barnes and Nobles or Amazon. Uh, typically, Amazon. Well, they all, all online publishers have them. Um, some books, any bookstore can order it for you, so you can get them different ways. But um, and so that that's the easiest way to get is just go to Amazon. Right. Okay. Uh, so we've done uh, this uh, program on part three of the book of uh, the Bible alternative um, medicine. And uh, you should go back and listen to the other programs. They are equally good, and you will get so much information by listening to them that I would highly recommend that you listen to the rest of Dr. LaGuardia's uh, programs. Ralph, it's great having you on the program today. Thank you so much, Wynn. I really appreciate it. I'm going to make my final comment, which is... My mission or purpose in life is to spread the message that there is a cure for every addictive behavior. And most of the uh, 8 billion people in the world have one or more addictive behaviors, I've found. Now, this is a spiritual cure, and the treatment program is profiled in my book, Freedom from Addiction 4, that's the number 4, the final message. If you meet three simple criteria, everyone cures their addiction. My book is now available on Kindle, on Amazon, soon to be available in paperback. I also have a new book which includes Freedom from Addiction 4 plus some additional information, and that book is called Most Everyone Wants to Go to Heaven, But Hardly Anyone Wants to Die. And uh, I would say that that book will probably uh, be available to you in a month. So um, go to my podcast, which is freedomfromaddiction.libson.com. No uh, spaces, no capitals, and spelling Libson, L-I-B as in boy, S-Y-N. Or go to my website, which is Freedom from Addiction, the number four, dot com. And the final resource that I have to tell you about is my Twitter account. On uh, twitter.com, search for at Hugo the Artist. That's me because I've been doing art since 1980. And there you will find over 2,300 inspirational and educational pearls of wisdom. And that's the end of our program today, and I hope that you have a great uh, great day, a great evening, and that you're totally blessed as a result of being able to hear uh, Dr. Ralph uh, talk about uh, the things that come out of his book, The Bible of Alternative Medicine. So, good night. <laughs>